You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It is April 20th, 2022. My name is Weston Nakamura, and I have the distinct pleasure of bringing back to Real Vision Mr. Darius Dale of 42 Macro. How are you, Darius? I'm wonderful, Weston. The pleasure's all mine, my friend. You've been killing it on the Shein analysis, man. Let's keep it going. Yeah, so, the, you know, we, uh, I guess we joke around about, you know, every time Japan blows up, you and I end up on a daily briefing. It's really not. A, it's really not like a joke anymore. It's really. This is really what is happening, well, right? Well, well, I I actually called Kuroda uh, yesterday to make sure we had some uh, some commentary uh, to get things cooked up today for you. Okay, okay. So that that's what's doing it. Okay, I got I got you now. Well, thanks for doing that. Let me just run through um so the the markets um so usually what I do you know I mean as a as a trader as a global trader I just go through like you know global markets cross assets so just very very quickly. So Asia equities mixed today, uh, you know, led by Japan, Taiwan, um, closing up just about 1% in the green. Aussie spy, Korea were flat. Hang Seng down a half percent. Hang Seng tech got killed today. Um, Europe, and we'll get to Japan in a moment, um, but Europe closed strong. Um, you know, German DAX, uh, fr- uh, France CAC 40 was up uh, about, you know, 1.5%, 1.4% respectively. Euro stocks 50, 1.75, led by tech. Uh, interesting giving the, the U.S. intraday tech picture at the time of European close was, uh, you know, down with uh, a Netflix bloodbath, which we'll get into as well. Um, but also in Europe, um, we saw strong strength led by uh, some financials, despite a slight bid for, you know, EU sovereign bonds. Ten-year German boon yield was down, uh, as well as Italian BTPs, UK gilts. Um, and then over to the US, US we have uh, markets that are uh, S&Ps largely flat. Big di- divergence, however, with the NASDAQ down uh, over a percent. And again, this was uh, from Netflix. Um, Netflix. Let's just get the, get into that real quick. So, Darius, <laughs> you have been apparently sharing your password with too many people, mm-hmm. so much so that uh, Netflix had its uh, worst. I believe it's its worst day on record on massive, massive volume. Um, I think it at one point reached almost forty percent down on the day. So, like eight or nine analyst downgrades on the stock. Um, now, you know, I'm not going to get into like two specific details about the single stock fundamentals or this or that, right? What I want to ask you is like two things. One of them is there is like kind of this kind of narrative that's being talked about out there that the Netflix um, subscription, you know, subscriber like growth, you know, that that went negative, that was a um, sort of a byproduct of inflation. Do you have a view on that um, in terms of not specifically, you know, people canceling the Netflix subscriptions, but about people's consumption behaviors um, with, you know, services, oh, yeah. subscriptions like that? Of course, absolutely. So a few things on Netflix. Um, you know, so let me, let me do the the Wall Street disclaimer. You know, we don't cover Netflix. We're not analysts. You know, da 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 da. Go get your, uh, go check your cuties and cross your eyes or whatever, whatever you need to say. Um, uh, with respect to Netflix, so for one, uh, don't blame me. Uh, I found out today that both my fiance and I were paying for Netflix independently. I canceled my subscription. Um, this, the, so their stock crashing 
told me to log in and find out if I was paying for Netflix, which I was and didn't realize uh, so that they lost one more customer today, unfortunately, for blowing up. Uh, but more importantly, I think this is more indicative of where we are in the broader capital market cycle. Uh, you know, you look at sort of, you know, the la history of bubbles, right? Go back to uh, the housing bubble, you know, prior to the financial crisis, you go back to the dot-com bubble, um, you know, in, in the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s. And there's usually sort of one to two big misses, big guide downs, big blow stock blow-ups that really kick off the bear market. I mean, you go back to 2000, uh, it was Qualcomm. You go back to 2007 as a blow-up in Bear Stearns. Um, and I believe the sort of blow-ups that we've seen in Facebook and Netflix while at the moment they're very sort of idiosyncratic and have a lot to do with mismanagement of those particular companies, the broader reality is the capital market cycles, particularly the sort of era of easy money that has sort of really allowed these companies to create very sort of uncompetitive moats around their businesses, that era is very clearly over. Um, you know, we've seen a dramatic rise, uh, over a hundred basis point rise in the real 10-year tip shield, in the 10-year tip shield uh, in the last sort of six weeks or so. And that's not a, uh, it's not, not an indication that that era is over, particularly for these large sort of, you know, mega cap fame type names. Uh, I don't know what else to tell you. All right. Um, yeah, that's, that's fine. Actually, what I, what I also want to ask you too was um, regarding Netflix was, um, look, at the end of the day, I'm not a fundamentals person either because I care uh, more about blinking green and red tickers rather than sort of corporate stories. Um, all, but that said, they're all squiggly lines on the page, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, um, but so you send over a, a chart deck, um, and one particular this crowding and dispersions uh, deck. Um, you have the this like dispersions month over month sharp ratios, and you have various like U.S. equity sector and style factors. Can you just like run through that? And the reason I'm, I'm bringing that up specifically is because you have all of these you know style factors and all that, and then thrown in there you have two single stock names, um, kind of almost out of place, which is Tesla and Netflix. So can you comment on what Netflix is doing in there relative to those other ones? Yeah, so uh, what that analysis, let me take a step back and explain the analysis. So the chart uh, shows the month over month sharp ratio uh, for about you know 55 or so US equity sector style factors, industries and mega cap fang names. Uh, what I'm looking at it is, is trying to study the composition changes in the composition of the upper quintile relative to the lower quintile. Those changes tend to be a leading indicator for sort of big reversals and not only in terms of the market direction, but also in terms of the internals uh, in, in terms of asset markets, whether they're getting more sort of pro-cyclical or more defensive at the margins. Uh, so one thing to call out with respect to the current setup is we continue to see, generally speaking, a pretty significant dominance of defensive type exposures uh, featured in the upper quintile. That typically is uh, a market uh, that's indicative. And, and take a step back again, one more. The reason we track the month over month sharp ratio is because we're trying to use this as a behavioral tool to understand the behavior of sort of what we call pod shop type flows. These are the multi-manager platform hedge fund shops. There's where all the assets under management have gathered uh, in the past decade or so. And these folks, you know, on any given day, you know, really control up to anywhere between 60 to 90 percent of market turnover. You know, so this is where the action is taking place in terms of these pot shops. So I use that as a behavioral tool to sort of track flows into and out of different sector style factors from an aggregate macro perspective. Going back to, you know, Netflix and really the composition upper quintile and the lower quintile. One thing that we're seeing now is a, a big defensive dominance, you know, utilities, consumer staples, REITs, dividends, all that stuff is exactly what you would expect uh, in a market that's increasingly concerned about the growth, medium term growth outlook. But when you look at the bottom quintile, it's not just sort of your traditional pro-cyclical high beta, you know, financials, you know, industrials, all the stuff you would expect to go down, retail, consumer, um, if, the market, if the economy was slowing. 
the composition of lower quintile also features companies like Netflix, you know, uh, growth names, et cetera, et cetera. And that to me uh, is telling us that there's a real liquidity trade being, being being put on right now in terms of like, hey, get me out of anything that's high beta, high mar uh, high valuation, you know, sort of overvalued, anything that's really lived high on the hog over the past few years or even the real decade um, in terms of the sort of lower for longer, slower for longer policy regime that we've been in. I mean, that's, yeah, that's fantastic. I actually want to um, pull up a chart that I grabbed off of uh, my, my buddy, uh, Craig Peterson over at Tier 1 Alpha. Um, so, uh, yeah, Brian, if you bring up this chart of these uh, S&P 500 constituents, like daily impact. So what he has is, um, and he, he tweeted this out earlier, but this is basically, you know, it's the S&P 500 constituents. And you can see the, how, like, far away, um, you know, Netflix is from the rest of the cluster. It's almost kind of a ridiculous chart to visually look at. Uh, but, you know, at, at the time of this, at least, um, like he did this midday, I'm guessing, uh, but Netflix has taken out, you know, uh, about 0.6% um, of impact on the S&P 500. Um, so that's, you know, and, and that, therefore that that explains this huge, you know, one percent divergence between the two indices of of the of the Nasdaq. Obviously, the other tech stocks too were uh, down, but I mean, you're looking at Netflix not only with like 120 million shares traded uh, today, but options volume as well. Um, you know, most active um, options traded um, underlier name. So um, the reason I also want to bring this up is because Netflix. This is not the first time that this happened. Last quarter, Netflix mm -hmm. also fell by what 20, 25 percent or whatever in, in a single day. And th these are these. This is a massive, like you know, market cap stock. And then, also last quarter, you had you know Facebook, you had Meta that was down you know by twenty five percent. You had Amazon that was up by twenty percent the, the following day. These are the the very top echelon of the S and P five hundred that are moving uh, hundreds of billions of dollars of market cap that are shifting around on an intraday basis and on, you know, so on sometimes on record volumes and on record sort of intraday swings. And that says to me a lot more about market structure and liquidity or lack thereof issues rather than any sort of underlying fundamentals and like the dumping of like shares and, and anything like that, as well as things like options activity um, that that does that. And and you saw a lot of episodes of those sort of blow ups happen uh, throughout earnings last quarter. So just I want people to be aware that I mean, I, I don't see that not happening this uh, this this quarter as well as quarters going forward. Um, there is a very big sort of uh, kind of within the plumbing or the market infrastructure you know, there's a liquidity like mismatch uh, happening due to largely things like passive um, vehicles that uh, hold these names and the absence of activity from active until they all jump in sort of together and they trigger each other. So, oh, um, yeah, 100%. And it's going to get worse. This, there's two reasons it's going to get worse. You're going to remove the marginal buyer just purely as a function of the growth slowdown that we have for uh, sort of, you know, that we're prognosticating, particularly in the back half of the year. Once you get into the summertime, you're going to start to see a much faster uh, deceleration in growth. Um, that all have implications from an asset market perspective, but also you're going to start to see a reduction in the Fed's balance sheet and a wholesale reduction in the net liquidity function in the in the in the market. If you look at the sort of changes um, in the Fed projected changes in the Fed's balance sheet and the Treasury General account. And so the key takeaway is that as bad as liquidity might seem today, 
it's going to be worse three months from now, and it's going to be even worse six months from now, and it will be even worse than that nine months from now. So you're, you know, you better be right if you're a stock picker, uh, particularly as you sort of navigate the next two to three quarters um, as it relates to, you know, just getting these earning cycles right. We're at a very precarious point in time whereby operating margins for the S&P are coming off at all-time high at 16%. We could have an earnings recession depending on how bad, uh, quickly that retraces, you know, just to get back to the prior peak, the prior peaks, if you look at every cycle we've seen since the 1980s, you know, the prior peak in S&P operating margin is somewhere between 12, 13 and 14 percent. And we're at 16 percent now on a way, you know, who knows where we'll slow down to. Uh, but it's very clear that we're starting to see some margin pressure. I don't believe Netflix is, is purely indicative of that. It seems more idiosyncratic than that to me. But I think once we get into the real teeth of the growth slowdown, you know, particularly in the back half of the year, you're going to start to see some wholesale uh, negative revisions to earnings expectations, cash flow expectations, et cetera. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Right. And and so, fine, like uh, Netflix might be idiosyncratic, uh, obviously, but there is a still broader sort of tie-in theme, which is like, you know, going back to what we were talking about, like things like market structure and like the holders, like these, you call them shareholders if you want to. Um, I guess an ETF is a shareholder, whatever. But like, mm-hmm. you know, if, if basically you have concentrations of, of holders um, in passive and you have um, fundamentals that are changing, actual fundamentals for which active pod shops, for example, that you were talking about, pod shops are, you know, basically hedge funds that have different pods, different like kind of groupings with, that are that are se- sort of segregated within uh, one giant hedge fund umbrella. But basically, if you have like these sort of long, short fundamental fu- uh, funds, um, they're not necessarily going to act on those fundamentals until those fundamentals come out via a corporate earnings statement and then they all kind of jump in at once and then you get sort of these big sort of blow up moves so um at a time when you have things like earnings uncertainty earnings like estimates divergences and all that kind of stuff yeah you could totally see single stock volatility high even if index volatility might not necessarily be uh high um so this is this so you're kind of hitting on something that's like market microstructure that i think is important to unpack because if you think about kind of there's been a couple things that have you know if you noticed in the past let's call it post GFC era, particularly in the last, you know, three to four years, um, going back to 2018, you know, it seems like markets grind up, grind up, grind up, and then take the elevator or take the window out, you know, they take the stairs up or the escalator up, and they take the window out. That feature has always been a feature of equity markets, credit markets, but it seems to be like that that feature itself has become sort of much more intense in recent years. And part of the reason for that is obviously the growth of the options sort of market and all the sort of Vanna and charm flows that contribute to the grind higher and eventually you get some sort of event ball or event that causes, you know, the kind of uh, window down. The second feature of that, I think, is is going back to this pod shop discussion. The growth of those platforms is is a real big uh, sort of, um, you know, kind of has a real big impact on asset markets. And, and one of the reasons I say that is that, you know, so these are long, market neutral, long, short at, at managers. They can't put on basis trades for any reason, style factors, sectors, industries. It's Netflix versus, you know, whoever sells Disney. You know, it's it's you know it's, it's it's I don't know Home Depot versus Lowe's. It's those types of trades, and so you know the fact they all these managers on these platforms, they have to have live updated models 
to transact in a stock and to keep it out the mothership. And so those models are live, they're updated. And so the increase is the likelihood that we have, hey, when you get some incremental earnings information, the people who need to sort of explain to Ken Griffin or Dimitri Baliasny or, or Steve Cohen why they're long Netflix or why they're short Netflix, they all have to update their models at the same time and they all come to the same conclusion at the same time and they all press the stock higher or press the stock lower. It's like handing a, you know, a room full of kindergartners a coloring book with Santa Claus as the first page they're all going to color red, you know, for the coat and white for the beard and black for the boots, right? That's exactly what's happening here from a market microstructure perspective. Yep, and and that's it. just to add to that as well, um, you also have risk managers that also exhibit the same behavior. So in that same kindergarten oh. classroom uh, sort of example, when the fire bell rings, they, you know, everyone gets a tap on the shoulder. They're all gonna 100%. right. So. 100%. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you know, so they, they might kind of have different marketing material, but they kind of behave the same um, for, for by and large. Um, so just stuff to keep in mind. It's not, you know, just about fundamentals. It's you really have to watch more so the investors who's holding the positions uh, and, and what they're doing. Bill Ackman, I think he went long at Netflix the last quarter when it dumped, you know, by by 20 percent or whatever. Uh, if he's still long, he just got killed. So if he's getting killed in this, what else is he holding? Maybe look to uh, like see if there's going to be an unwind in, in some of those holdings. That's just a random example, uh, but I have no idea if well, that, there's but, any truth to that, but, you know, just, just a, putting a Tiffany bow in the Netflix discussion. It just reminds you that when you're in a bear market, you could always lose 100 percent of your money from any starting price. Right. I mean, not saying the Netflix is going to zero or the stock market is going to zero, but it just reminds you that, hey, stock might be down 20, 30 percent off its highs. That doesn't mean it can't go down 20, 30 percent lower. It's just log math. This is just this is just percentage change math. That's all it is. Thank God there's no leverage in markets, though, right? That would be good. <laughs> You want to transition um, to the uh, to the, to this yen situation? Let's do this. So, um, basically, what happened? Um, why are we here, Darius? To, why did we, why do we why are we here? Why did you blow up uh, Japan? So this is now what happened. Um, so yesterday, towards the end of about twenty four hours ago or so, I put out a tweet, uh, basically saying that JGB futures are currently selling off, like you know, in the middle of U.S. trading hours, towards the end of U.S. trading hours like severely on volume so watch out for a potential um you know fixed rate operation uh by the bank of japan at 10 10 a.m in japan time fixed rate operations when bank of japan offers to buy an unlimited amount of jgbs in order to cap yields because the way that jgb futures are selling off the cash uh you know jgb market is going to see a massive spike in yields at 10 10 a.m uh the bank of japan announced a fixed rate operation um, and thereby capping yields. Uh, but Brian, if you go to, um, let's see, if you go to chart, uh, sorry, chart uh, two, um, I'm sorry, chart three rather, um, what you'll see is, so these are the JGB futures, right? And the JGB futures market, you'll see like that sell off that I was talking about. And then you'll see this reversal. And so that reversal was when the fixed rate operation at 10, 10 a.m. was announced. And then after Japan close, um, uh, Japan cash close at you know, 3 p.m. or 4 p.m. or so, the Bank of Japan announced an entire like new set of fixed rate operations going forward for the next four consecutive days. This is the second time they've done this. They did this back in um, March, um, in which they kind of pre-announced, uh, you know, uh, consecutive days of fixed rate operations, in which they're going to keep the 10-year JGB yield um, at a sort of cap of, of 25 basis points by, uh, you know, unlimited bids. And uh, next, Charbrine, if you go to, if you take a look at what it did to the rest of the markets, 
not only did JGBs basically V bottom at 10, 10 a.m. and then take another boost higher from there, so therefore yields lower, but this had an effect on the currency markets uh, and the treasury markets. So you'll see uh, the yen had basically bottomed um, as well as the treasury market had bottomed right at that point and then rallied from there. And then uh, the the, ne the next chart run uh, with the dollar yen and the U.S. 10-year yield. It's basically the same thing um, as the futures chart that I just showed you. However, this one is um, obviously just showing the, the, the underliers of those respective listed derivatives. And you'll see that the you know the the v reversal point the, the top in dollar yen and the top in 10 year us treasury yields was right at 10 10 a.m uh on that bank of japan fixed rate operation um announcement um now the weird thing is that when this is why i pointed out in my tweet yesterday was saying that like it was very weird that the jgb market and the yen was selling off simultaneously and what I was saying was that that was a, uh, you know, a divergence in in global macro in which the yen sellers were believing that the Bank of Japan was, you know, kind of in anticipation of, you know, this this fixed rate operation that was going to be announced in a few hours. The yen sellers were believing that the Bank of Japan was going to do this and was going to cap yields um, and uh, prevent JGBs from falling. Um, the JGB sellers obviously were not of that belief or were, were trying to fight the Bank of Japan and they, they lost. But it's interesting to see that you saw this divergence. It's not like a unanimous sort of cross-asset like belief in one way or the other. And so that's why you actually see, you know, because people, you would think that if if JGB yields are kept via a fixed rate operation, the dollar yen should be through 130. Well, no, not necessarily. It just got pre-priced in. Um, and so that's what the explanation is for that sort of uh, unique price movement and price action that happened there. But uh, there's give me your thoughts on because uh, I know you're one of like you and really Jim Biago are the, uh, the you know, the the only other ones that I find credible talking about this. Um, so give me your thoughts on on what we're we're looking at here with uh, BOJ. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, J Jim is one of the great investors of our era. So I appreciate it just being mentioned in a sentence. But you certainly, uh, I would say much, 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 even more than Jim, uh, have a great handle on a lot of these dynamics. So let me let me take a step back. Because to me, there's there's a couple things that we need to answer or at least dig into uh, as investors. One, why is the BOJ capping yields when the whole world is you know dealing with record inflation and massive policy regime change? And then two. At what level will the you know Ministry of Finance in Japan intervene in the end? Because obviously it seems like it's a problem. Well, uh, let's start with the first one. Japan has had a terribly, terribly woeful time of trying to generate and sustain inflation. This we all know. They've been in some version of deflation or hybrid deflation for you know several, a couple decades now. Um, and the reality is, is you know when you look at the latest data, we got February uh, CPI data thus far. The BOJ has a 2% target out there for uh, headline CPI Express Food. That number is at 0.6%. You know, so we're 140 basis points per the latest data point uh, underneath the target. You look at it, core CPI, you know, Express Food and and and, um, and energy as well, minus 1.8%. So still very much in deflation when you layer on uh, the energy component. And then you say, well, guess what? The yen's going down, oil's going up. So that obviously must be inflating Japanese exports. And again, you just wait. You're going to see some inflation in Japanese uh, in, uh, inflation statistics. They're going to import inflation rather over the medium term. Well, that's not necessarily the case. We just got the trade data last night for mm -hmm. uh, ex, you know for for the month of March, and we actually saw import growth slow in a month where the yen got absolutely eviscerated. So it was uh, slow to 31.2 percent 
Uh, that's the slowest pace of growth we've seen uh, year over year, slowest pace of year over year growth we've seen since October 21. So they're moving in the wrong direction in terms of importing uh, inflation. Uh, Brian, if you don't mind putting up the chart, Japan growth and inflation. You know, we, you know, we model everything, you know, from growth and, and inflation standpoint uh, at 42 macro in order to sort of predict and measure and, and project what we call our grid regime process. And, you know, looking at the chart on the right in that slide, which is our projections for Japanese inflation. And the reality is, yes, Japanese inflation over the next few two to three months is likely to increase higher, let's call it 20 to 30 basis points. But it's very much likely to stick around that point, that level, which is considerably shy of the BOJ's uh, target, and then eventually start to wane um, kind of in Q1 of next year. And so that's the inflation outlook in Japan, which is why we not have not necessarily seen such a rush for intervention out of the Ministry of Finance, which brings me to my next point. What are the conditions that will catalyze a, 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 a intervention? Because clearly an intervention in, in the um, in the in the in the JPY uh, in the USD JPY rate or Japanese yen would likely catalyze a, a sort of a sea change in the kind of current macro dynamics, which is U.S. yields up, Japanese yen down, you know, sort of capital flows in that direction. Um, and so, you know, one thing I, we looked at, I, I created a chart for the show, um, Brian, if you put up the chart, uh, USD JPY intervention. Um, this is important analysis is in sort of, you know, sort of a, it's almost like an experiment. So um, instead of sort of reading 200, 300 pages of historical text, try to figure out what were all the historical yen interventions? Well, we actually just created a sort of, you know, kind of a, a, a scenario analysis. Okay, we're looking at monthly candles after a period of either stability or a dramatic decline in the yen. Let's spot the first very large downside deviation in the monthly candle for the USD JPY cross, and then analyze what the level of volatility was at that moment in time. Because again, as you and I've talked about the last two to three shows we've done this, um, it's not the, the level of the yen, as you can see in the top panel of that chart, the level of the yen is not very weak. The yen has been substantially weaker in previous cycles and previous decades. So the level is not the issue. It's the speed of the change. And it's always the speed of the change with respect to central bank policy intervention or treasury policy intervention. So there have been seven of what we consider to be an intervention. Again, a big downside deviation in the monthly candle after a period of stability or a dramatic decline in the yen relative to the dollar. February 1973, May 1980, December 1982, October 85, October 90, October 98, and October 8. I have no idea what the hell is going on in October, <laughs> but if we do see an intervention, I'm betting on October 2022. But anyway, the key takeaway <laughs> from the slide <laughs> is of those seven, what I would consider to be, you know, some form of intervention, either through, you know, must obviously very clearly must have been a more than verbal in those instances. You know, they're the mean. 30-day realized volatility for those, you know, at the time of intervention was 21%. You know, we're still under 10% at the current juncture. So we haven't seen anything yet as it relates to the kind of weakness we have historically seen in Japan, in the Japanese yen, and really from a volatility standpoint, that would actually get the Ministry of Finance over there really activated um, and really engaged with other central banks and, and, and fiscal policy policymakers to, you know, kind of arrest the decline. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. And I just want to, you know, just to kind of put a, a, a bow on that. I, I really hate that term. I don't know why I said that. To put a bow on that. Um, 
so awesome analysis, by the way, because so many people Thanks. talk about yen intervention. Um, I, I'm just going to boil it down very clear. Clearly, there is no yen intervention. Just look at actions versus words. The action is that the the collective, you know, uh, the Bank of Japan and the Ministry of Finance are electing to support the JGB market at, at the expense of the currency. Um, so obviously they're going to have to say things like we are very concerned and this and that. You know, they, they can't be aloof about it, but they just look at what they're doing. Uh, clearly, there is no sort of yen intervention, and there is severe, um, you know, uh, JGB intervention. Actually, and on that note, I just want to cut to um, a clip of uh, James Aiken, who is uh, who Raul calls the uh, expert's expert. Um, he's fantastic, but he um, he actually had a an interview with Raul talking about this very matter. So let's uh, take a look at that. You're not going to suggest the House of Pain shorting JGBs. <laughs> <laughs> really? It kind of sounds like you are. <laughs> okay. How about we say this? Pay yen rates? <laughs> sounds better. Sounds much better. Yeah, that sounds really sensible. Yeah, I mean, options sound like that would be mispriced. You know, if you get something at 50 basis points or 75 basis points in JGBs, you kind of have long, you know, short yen, long that. Well, what's interesting, just on a technical note again, is that 10-year yen swaps got up to 45 basis points. They're now down again. But And 10-year yen swap spreads, which used to be one of the favorite playthings of certain macro investors 30 years ago, have suddenly sprung back into life. So yen swap spreads have come out because it makes sense. Bank of Japan defending 25 basis points, over-the-counter 10-year interest rate swaps going out, the spread between them wider. So I'm thinking about that, and you're right. Maybe it's a widow maker again. Maybe it's complete madness. But the, the serious point is we need to watch this really carefully because it's not just this dynamic between a Bank of Japan uh, capping JGB yields and a weaker yen. It's the spillovers on so many other markets. And the way I'm thinking about it, and, and I caution it could be terribly wrong, but if the world's, J, world's duration anchor, a 10-year JGB, starts to drag more than it is already, then what's the ripple effect on bonds? What's the ripple effect on a 10-year treasury just when people are getting quite hot and bothered about yield curve inversion, right? So I'm wondering about that. But the point you're making is critical if we're trying to understand macro opportunity in the weeks and months ahead, we have to be focused on dollar yen again and JGBs again in a way, frankly, we haven't for the best part of 25 years. All right. So that was Mr. James Aiken, who got to, got to give him credit, but he, although with kind of a sour lemon face, talked about, Shorting JGBs, the Widowmaker. Now, you just mentioned, you know, you and your fiancé. So, uh, Darius, would you consider becoming a future widow <laughs> or uh, making her <laughs> a future uh, widow uh, with, with this trade in short JGBs? 
No, I mean, it's pretty clear. So, I mean, every central bank has every 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 sovereign entity has a choice with respect to monetary and fiscal policy. Right. You know, we we're, we we wonky academics call this the quote unquote unholy trinity. You want currency stability, you want free floating capital movement, or do you want um, interest rate uh, you know, a control of your monetary policy? Well, Japan has very clearly decided to control or to allow, you know, sort of uh, having uh, maintained its independent monetary policy and, and open capital account. Well, guess what has to go in that in that setup? You can't have all three. You can't have your cake and eat it too, uh, from that perspective, from a policymaking perspective. So I will not be joining the sort of short JGB trade. Um, if anything, I mean, again, it's just like I, the macro guys. You know, there's a, you know, and I'm not saying uh, my man James uh, is struggling or anything, but I think this tends to happen from a risk management perspective, particularly you know when when investors are losing money, they start gripping the bat, you know, and start you know trying to swing for the fences. Right. And like if you think about the volatility pricing on shorting JGBs and having that that peg break, the upper boundary of the BOJ's peg break, there's a huge payoff structure in that, not only from a ball market perspective, but also just from a duration risk perspective. So if you've lost money or lost lots of money this year, that's one of those places where a global macro discretionary macro fund manager can go and try to try to at the bare minimum, try to break the bank of Japan or break the sovereign state of Japan. I don't think it's going to happen. We're nowhere near, at least going back to the analysis we talked about earlier um, in terms of where that's likely to happen. Yeah, um, it's, it's 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 funny because like, yeah, it's, if you're the doghouse, if you're basically a fund manager that's down uh, and this is you're on your last kind of string, go ahead and short JGBs. Yeah. Because you're gonna lose your job anyway. The weird, the funny thing, ironically, however, is that like I think that all hedge, like hedge fund strategies were down Q1 except for macro. So th those are th those are the ones who are not gonna be, you know, ironically. Uh, but um, yeah, so uh, I just want to take some some questions there as well. We just uh, you know have, have some time here. Uh, so we have a question from uh, Jojo from the. Uh, RV site. So, Mr. Dale, your thoughts on XLRE uh, and XLV? Historically, these outperform just before a recession, um, along with XLE. XLRE tends to rally after XLE. Um, I'm sure you know that well. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, on, a, on, a, on a relative performance basis, on a long-only asset management perspective, you want to be in non-cyclical sort of stocks. So, uh, even within REITs, it's the data centers, it's the, you know, sort of industrial warehouses, it's not the apartment REITs, it's not the mortgage REITs, it's not the, you know, kind of shopping center REITs, you know, so that's, I, I love that sector because there's a lot of dispersion, um, depending on what where you are in the cycle. But generally speaking, you know, the kinds of sectors and style factors you're going to be long if you're forced to remain actively participating in this equity market, um, and again, I think there's a choice there. Uh, are the kinds of sectors that that, that, are, that are associated with slower economic environments, slower, um, you know, kind of, um, you know, bigger slowdowns in, in growth and, and, and you know, heading into the latter cycle. We are late cycle. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. I keep hearing economists and strategists talk about mid-cycle. I've never seen a mid-cycle economy with a 3.6% unemployment rate. <laughs> yeah, who ha I mean, who has? Like, this is preposterous. That's what you need to say at Wall Street to get paid on the loan growth side to, to these to some idiot, you know, corporate treasurers. But markets do not think we're mid-cycle. We had a narrow inversion in the yield curve earlier this year. That's going to presage a, a much more significant inversion probably later this year or early part of next year before we ultimately wind up in, in what could be a recession or certainly could be a, a slowdown to well below trend growth by the middle of next year. Yeah, good point. Um, so I'm just going to take this. There's one more question here. Um, basically, uh, this is from Michael B. from the RV site. So everyone is saying sell and go away uh, this year. Uh, first of all, they don't say it just this year, Michael, but everyone says sell and go away every year. But 
What is the probability that Fed bulks and equities rally sharply uh, this summer, the pain trade? Uh, here's what I want to say on that, um, specifically about the Fed or anything. Um, you know, I, there's comment on that, but that it's actually a very good reminder of the schedule ahead to things to pay attention to. OK, so first of all, this weekend, we have French elections. Um, there are hedge funds that are short uh, French equities in case of some outlier Marine Le Pen win. So you might get some, you know, market uh, movements based on that. Next week, however, so like I said, the Bank of Japan just announced yesterday um, at close that they're going to be capping the JGB market for the next four days straight. Then you have two days until Golden Week begins in Japan. Golden Week is the longest holiday in Japan uh, annually. It begins next Friday, and it technically ends the following Friday. But so the entire first week of May, Japan is out. If nobody comes back to work the Friday of the entire week off, so you could basically say, you know, the following Monday, so the March 11th. So basically between April 29th and March 11th, you're going to have the largest, you know, foreign capital allocator out of markets. Um, and that is coinciding with this, like, end of capping JGBs artificially. Obviously, JGBs aren't trading, but currency will be trading. So be aware that that is coming. Not just be aware during that time frame. Um, obviously, but also before that, what are, you know, Japanese like capital allocators going to be doing beforehand uh, in sort of preparation for that? So I just want to uh, remind uh, people of that. Uh, but uh, so there's a time flew, flew right by when we're talking about blowing up Japan. Um, so we'll have to do this again uh, sometime. Um, Can I have one, one comment but, on the uh, yeah. Salman Goway? Yeah, sure. so I mean, look, look, there's, there's, there's you know, you, you do have to respect seasonality, particularly where we're in a market where liquidity is, is a function is just getting worse and deteriorating at the margins and quite quite honestly sustain, will be sustainably deteriorating at the margins. The one thing I call out in terms of everyone is saying sell them and go away and, and with all due respect to the person who asked the question, that doesn't actually mean anything. You know, every, what everyone's talking about on FitTwit doesn't necessarily mean that's where the markets are positioned either in cash futures or in, in, in other derivatives like options. You know, when you actually look at the options market and you can pull up that chart, Brian, uh, the crowding and dispersion chart again, the chart on the left shows our sort of crowding analysis where we look at the relationship between deviations in skew and volatility risk premium. It turns out we calculate the, the, those two functions. If you look at the stock market, if you look at U.S. equities broadly on a median basis, I think there's about, you know, kind of 25 or 30 um, ETFs represented in the U.S. equity sample or the stock market in general, just looking at the SPY. We are not where you would expect to see from a skew perspective. Skew is very narrow in both of those instruments, one in the SPY and also from a median perspective. If you were talking about everyone being bearish on the selling man go away, you'd actually start to see a bigger upside deviation in skew uh, from that perspective. So it's telling you that even though we're all talking about everyone's bearish on FinTwit, no one's actually pressed the damn button in terms of actually getting out of the market, shorting stocks, or doing those kinds of things. That doesn't mean the market has to go down now just because I said that, but it certainly means that there is a pocket of downside risk associated with the de deterioration in economic fundamentals over the next kind of three to six months and a deterioration in the net liquidity function. Well put as always. Um, thank you so much, Darius. Um, we have to do this again sometime. Um, so keep your eyes on, you know, BOJ, keep your eyes on 42 Macro. Uh, and thanks for watching the daily briefing. Well, uh, Maggie Lake will be back tomorrow with Mr. Jim Bianco, uh, presumably to follow up a little bit more on what's happening with Japan as well as other things as well. But thanks for watching, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Weston, keep killing it, brother. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best 
brightest and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.